It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeedy. Pleasant good afternoon to you once again on this Thursday edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our engineer. Let's deal with more serious issues, shall we? As we dive into today's program, you know, of course, that really effectively since the inauguration of President Trump, um, he has taken several critical steps towards rolling back a lot of the, well, frankly, not just uh, the Obama era, but even going back to Clinton era policies that related to everything from abortion on demand, taxpayer funding, um, a lot of issues, quite frankly, of major interest to pro-life individuals. One of the areas that's been kind of hanging in the air has been the whole question of funding for Planned Parenthood. Much of the questions, quite frankly, raised um, in the wake of the scandal related to Planned Parenthood, harvesting of body parts for quote-unquote research with nobody granting permission or authority to do so. Well, on the heels of that, questions about funding, the need to perhaps revisit the entire question by defunding Planned Parenthood has um, been a hot topic. Now there is movement toward changing some of Title X funding and the regulations related to same that relates to government funding for so-called family planning that would essentially call to task the way Planned Parenthood has repeatedly failed to protect both women and, quite frankly, minors from being victims of everything from child sex abuse to rape. Let's get more on the story. Allison Centofante joins us, Director of Strategic Communications at Live Action. And great to have you with us, Allison. Tell us a bit about the background concerning uh, this area. One would have thought, particularly following the revelations of what was going on inside Planned Parenthood regarding the baby part harvesting, that they would get their act together and, of all things, make sure that they would comply with requirements to report child sex abuse and rape. But it appears as if this has been one of the big, dirty secrets of Planned Parenthood. What's going on? Mm, Thank you for having me. And Absolutely, Live Action, the organization that I work for, is founded by a woman named Lila Rose, who many, you and many of your listeners may know has gone undercover at Planned Parenthood multiple times to expose the corruption there. And in 2008 and 2011, she did two different undercover investigations that revealed Planned Parenthood employees time after time being willing to aid the bet sex traffickers, those who are posing as though they were a part of the sex industry, that needed girls as young as 13 or 14 to have abortions so that they could get them back into work, and also failing to help a what she was posing as a 13-year-old girl with a 31-year-old, quote, boyfriend who didn't want to get in trouble. And time after time, Planned Parenthood employees failed to report abuse, which they are obliged to do as mandatory reporters, but also common sense would say if you see a victim in front of you or you know sex abuse or sex trafficking is happening, that you should report that abuse to authorities. And so we released a report just last week and had a press conference today to talk about that. So this is not only something that they are bound legally 
from a reporting requirement viewpoint. But one would think, if we just take everything at face value, that they present themselves as being an enormous pro-women's organization, that in the best interest of the clients that they serve, that they would make every effort that if they ever ran across a case of child sex abuse or rape, that they would fulfill not just their legal obligations, but their moral obligations to report mm-hmm. it. So what, what's the agenda here? Is this what, that uh, after decades of the practice of looking the other way, that they've done so because what, they think that if they, if they began to report that women and women would stop going there? What's the agenda? Sure. So think of it this way. Um, as as Planned Parenthood claims to be one of the leading advocates for women, they've even come out and tried to jump on this Time's Up and Me Too bandwagon with Cecile Richards, the former president of Planned Parenthood, saying, quote, we see sex abuse victims every day in our clinics. The issue is, though, that they have driven these employees and have created such a culture that values abortion over everything. That they, these Planned Parenthood employees and managers that are in our investigative report and seven-part docuseries, videos, seven videos you can watch, these managers and employees talk about how scared they were to, to report rape or abuse because of the red tape, the trouble that it would take. But they knew, on the flip side, that if they could just administer an abortion, they would most likely get closer to their, quote, abortion quota, which we know that Planned Parenthood has abortion goals. And, in fact, I'm not making this up, could even be rewarded by a pizza party because if they meet those abortion quotas. So you've got an organization here that we fund with our taxpayer dollars. Instead of seeing a victim that needs to get help and, and they could be a point of intervention for this young girl, instead, I think they are even subconsciously, if not intentionally, saying, we've had managers say, we thought there was nothing else we could do. All we could do was give an abortion and send them on their way, send them back into the arms of their abusers, often waiting in a car or in the waiting room. And, wow, I mean, particularly in the case of women that are uh, in a position that they feel defenseless, meaning that the abuser maybe is um, someone upon whom they rely for um, everything from housing to meals. This could range from a young child to uh, perhaps a um, emotionally and physically abused spouse or partner. The manipulation that takes place here, the victimization, really, is almost twice over. First at the hands of the perpetrator when the, they are being victimized and find themselves in a crisis pregnancy. And then the second time when Planned Parenthood, in an ideal position to intervene, bring the situation to the attention of the authorities and hopefully stop that cycle of victimization, when they fail to do that, it's almost as if this woman is victimized twice over. Well, we know she's victimized again when she's forced to have an abortion. I mean, abortion itself is abuse. It is a great abuse against a woman and her unborn child. And so Planned Parenthood, we already know, is taking part in that abuse every day. And now we know that they are failing to address any abuses that surround abortion. You know, abortion enables abuse. If you think about being a sexual predator, what do you need to cover up your sexual crime? You need access to abortion services. And so Planned Parenthood takes our taxpayer dollars, 
two million every single day and is able to market and have beautiful websites and glossy print advertising. But guess who also sees that? The low life of the world who need abortion quick and without questions asked. Let me just say really quickly, there was a report done at published by the Beasley Institute at Loyola University where they interviewed over 100 sex trafficking survivors, girls that have actually survived the worst form of sex slavery. They talked to them about where they were taken, and they themselves self-reported being taken to Planned Parenthood most for medical treatment, only second to emergency rooms. And when asked why that is, a survivor said, because, quote, they didn't ask any questions. That's why their abusers took them there. So we have to hear the stories of these girls. We have to hear what they're telling us. And the good news here is that the, uh, President Trump's administration, Health and Human Services, has announced new regulations that could potentially strip Planned Parenthood of more than $60 million annually of Title X funds that they receive every single year. So that is, that's the good news here. All right, but there's another question that that I think takes us beyond the notion of the potentiality of them losing their Title X family um, planning dollars from the government. Again, $60 million, it's nothing to sneeze at, but uh, at a level it's just a small portion of the money that um, Planned Parenthood receives. But the bigger, I think, driving question, Allison, is what about criminal charges? I mean, for example, um, teachers in public schools, they are compelled by law that if they spot a case of potential child abuse, they by law must report it. If they fail to do so, not only do they run the risk of losing their job, but there could be other penalties imposed, including fines and imprisonment, because they have failed the due diligence, they have failed to act in the best interest of the child. Why is there not this compulsion built into this requirement that may they not only lose their taxpayer funding through Title X, but that any Planned Parenthood employee who sees signs of abuse and fails to appropriately report it to the appropriate authorities would also be criminally liable? Yes, well, it's important to realize that this investigative report highlights the stories of girls who did turn around and sue Planned Parenthood for failing to report their abuse. Uh, I think if you look at the report, you can see Ohio, Arizona, Washington State. But I think specifically of a story of a young girl being taken in when she was 13, 16, and 17 years old. She was being raped by a family member, uh, by her father, and they administered an abortion every time. And it's just unfortunate to think about these girls being in a room full of adults and adults not asking the right questions to get them out of that situation. Uh, one of the former Planned Parenthood managers said there's a don't ask, don't tell, very similar. Don't ask, don't tell. I don't want to hear the age. I don't want to know what's going on. Don't tell me because then I might have to report So the woman gets abused first off at the hands of whoever the abuser might be. It might be a partner, might be a spouse, might be a parent, an uncle, whatever. Then they are led to Planned Parenthood where they are forced to have an abortion, so they are abused then the second time, and then once released by Planned Parenthood back into the arms of the abuser, they return into that environment to be abused sometimes again and again and again. Yes. Wow. It's heartbreaking. This is, this is another one of Planned Parenthood's pretty dirty secrets, isn't it? 
is. I mean, we have a nationwide conversation happening right now about the prevalence of sexual assault. That's very serious. We have to listen to those stories. Secondly, we have a very serious issue with sex trafficking, even in our own country and internationally. You're seeing companies pour money into these organizations that help fight sex trafficking. But I can't help but think if we are really going to combat these great evils in society, that we have to look at every system that enables abuse, that allows abuse to continue. And Planned Parenthood has been shown to be a big part of that. I would say an abuser's best friend because we've heard these stories of how they don't ask questions. And so it needs to end. Live Action will continue to ask for a full taxpayer defund of Planned Parenthood for not only this, but their continued promotion and performance of abortion to women across the country and across the world. And let me just make clear, we as conservatives get pushed back all the time asking, well, what are you going to do? How do you actually help women? What are these women supposed to do in unplanned pregnancies? And I, I, will, I will raise you this question. Imagine what we could do with the same amount of money that Planned Parenthood received. The Heritage Foundation released a report just this month that said Planned Parenthood received over $1.5 billion, billion with a B, taxpayer dollars in the last three years alone. Imagine the good that we could do to support women and families and young mothers, single moms, with $1.5 billion of taxpayer funds. We should redirect that money from Planned Parenthood to better resources, absolutely. And we really hope this report leads people, even even people who have never thought about this before, to, to come and understand why Planned Parenthood should no longer receive a, a penny of our tax dollars. Well, it's good news to hear that there is this proposed change in the works. Um, do you see this as a potential first step and for people of faith, people, quite frankly, that are concerned not just about the outcome of the mother and her child, but also the repeated abuse of situation here. What should we be doing? Absolutely. And thank you for asking. Uh, today, there was a press conference on Capitol Hill here in D.C. where 56 members of Congress signed on to a letter to get this ball moving forward. What we've asked for, and they've asked for, is for Health and Human Services, who administers these funds to Planned Parenthood and other entities, to investigate how prevalent this crime is. Again, we only know the stories we hear of that we're brave enough to speak up. We need to know, and HHS needs to investigate, the prevalence of these crimes, and we believe that we'll continue to build a case against Planned Parenthood, against these abortion providers, and how they have failed women and hurt women. Uh, so that is encouraging to me. We've seen great response from our videos online. To answer your question about what to do, share these videos. People don't know. We at Live Action, an education journalistic entity, our job is to educate. And these videos are doing just that. They document the legal cases. They document the Planned Parenthood employees and managers. They showcase the victim testimonials and also health department reports that prove um, and affirm there's a systemic pattern of cover-up, a culture of cover-up here at Planned Parenthood. This isn't an incident or here or there. You know, Planned Parenthood actually fired one person when those videos that I was talking about came out uh, in 2008, 2011, where Lila went undercover. They fired one person, and that was it. And they'll say, we fired that person, it was an incident, but it is not. This is decade-long abuse, decade-long. And so I say share these videos with your friends, family, and, and be educated yourself because we get pushback on wanting to defund Planned Parenthood. 
And so often you hear, that's going to hurt women. No, actually, this will help women. And this will penalize someone who is aiding abuse day in and day out. Yeah, the, the Me Too movement should be aware of what's going on with this and realize that in many ways, at many levels, Planned Parenthood is an enabler of abusers. If you want to get more information about some of the videos that Allison just referred to, you can find them on the Live Action website. Simply go to liveaction.org. That's liveaction.org. Allison Santofante, thank you so much for being with us tonight, Allison. Thank you. All right, 523, let's get caught up here. We're way off track, so let's see if we can't get you back on track. We're going to begin first with an update from the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Over the last many months, there has been a growing body of concern over the school shootings. Places like Columbine, Sandy Hook, Parkland, Marshall County. The list seemingly continues to grow, and with it, concerns by parents not just over whether or not the physical environment is a safe one for children to learn, but certainly Christian parents have known for a long time that while that's important, so too is the quality and safety of the academic, moral, and spiritual environment in which our children are educated. Joining me today in studio is Brian Rectin, and Brian is here to share some good news about an opportunity for parents all across the San Francisco Bay Area who've long dreamed about getting their child into a private school where they can make sure that not only is there a safe learning environment from a physical aspect, but also a safe learning environment from the academic, moral, and spiritual aspect. And Brian, at the end of the day, this half-off tuition program that KFAX has been running for a number of years now really helps parents accomplish just that. Yeah, it's very exciting, Craig, and actually we're doing this for the seventh year, and uh, over 89 families have actually benefited from this, and they've enrolled their children, and they've taken advantage of these half-price vouchers. And the first thing that I usually hear from parents is, you know, when I tell them half-price, they say, what's the catch? Well, there really isn't a catch. This has uh, been working wonderfully. God is using it in, in mighty ways. Uh, for families that just think Christian school is out of their reach, we've partnered with now, uh, so far, uh, 16 schools this year, although schools continue to uh, come on board. But when we launch this, we'll have uh, at least 16 schools thread, spread throughout the Bay Area that will be offering vouchers at half price. Now, the only catch really is that it's new families, families that are not currently enrolled, and they do limit it to one per family because they're trying to uh, bless as many families as possible. And and basically, the re-enrollment rate is nearly 90%. So what history has shown us over these uh, six years that we've completed this process is that once a family does enroll their child or children in a Christian school, the vast majority of them re-enroll. The proof is in the pudding. They get a chance to experience the difference in their child's attitude, in their sense of well-being. Certainly, uh, almost across the board, a marked improvement Mm -hmm. in their academic testing and scores. And, you know, that's attributable things like a low student-teacher ratio in private schools, Bible-based education, the level of attention that the students receive, So I guess for the parents, they come in with this with sort of a, seems too good to be true, but let's 
put our toe in the water and, and, and lo tested. and behold they find that it is true and you know what else they don't have to do they don't have to debrief their kids every day when they come home from the <laughs> yeah. government schools yeah, this is you true. know what did you hear today what did you learn today and all the craziness you know with with uh, you know gender neutral bathrooms and all the crazy stuff going on in the public school they're finding that it's a breath of fresh air they're actually looking forward to their children coming home from school to talk about what they learned that day and it finally puts the parent the child the administration, the teacher, all on the same page, all pulling together for the well-being and best interest of the child. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't good public schools, because they are. But with so many agendas afoot at the state level, at the federal level, and as you mentioned, between the curriculum and some of the other policies, parents have a lot to be concerned about as to whether or not what they're trying to instill in terms of biblical and moral values and academic standards in their child is being supported or countermanded Mm -hmm. in their scholastic experience. And the good news with a private Christian education is everybody's on the same page. Everybody. And you know, what I would encourage listeners, if you're hearing this and you're not, you've, you've never heard this before. You're new in the area. You just started listening to KFAX. I'd encourage you to go to our website, kfax.com. Click on any of the banners that are on the homepage that say back to school, and you'll see the list of schools. We put up a convenient map there where you're going to be able to see where all the pins are located. And you'll see everything there is to know about those schools, the website, some information on the school, what grades they're offering vouchers for. And if the two align with your with your family, then I would encourage you to call. Uh, call me. My number and my name will be there on that page. You can ask me any questions you want. You can go visit the school. You can take a tour. The thing you want to do, though, is you want to let them know immediately that you're, you're trying to claim a KFAX voucher. Now, of course, these schools are very familiar with the voucher program. I want to talk for just a second, too, about the army of listeners that have heard about this, the 89 families that have already enrolled a child. And I'm going to ask if uh, I could solicit you all as ambassadors for this program. You've tasted and seen what this program has meant to your family. So I just encourage you to mention it to friends, mention it to coworkers, mention it to folks at church. Let them know about the program. A lot of people, uh, there are one or two people in the Bay Area that don't listen to KFAX. We know most of them do. But uh, this has been such a blessing. I could talk for hours and tell God stories of how this has changed lives. I, I, I don't have it in studio with me, but I just got an email from a mom from back in 2014 whose son is now graduating, going on to a very, very prestigious college. And she sent us an email just saying, it all started with the half-price voucher. I never dreamed I would be able to enroll my son in Christian school. Well, Four years later, he's graduating, and his life's been transformed. And it is an indisputable fact that because of the difference in the student-to-teacher ratio in private schools, the biblical-based standards, mm-hmm. um, the, the attention to scholastic excellence at every level, that SAT test scores are higher, Children that matriculate through K through 12 and then go on to two- and four-year colleges and universities 
is significantly higher. So at the end of the day, it's it's well worth the experience. Now, let's talk about um, a few of the housekeeping details. Again, more information available at kfax.com. Just look for the half-off tuition banner anywhere. Click on that. That'll take you to the map. You can find out what schools are available in your area. That list, as Brian mentioned, is growing daily. Again, at kfax.com. You can also get information in terms of the details of the program. So first-time families, one child per family. Uh, You do have to meet the school's individual scholastic entrance requirements. Yeah, the school will still meet with the family, um, but here's the good news is uh, even at half price, your funds are never at risk because if for any reason, and it's stated very clearly on our website, if for any reason you or the school doesn't go forward with the enrollment, you get a full and immediate refund. So your your funds are never at risk. The important thing to know, though, is it, it is a first-come, first-serve uh, opportunity here. Now, what if I go to the website, kfax.com, I click on the half-off tuition banner, I look at the list, I look at the map and go, wow, the school that I was hoping for is not there. I would encourage you to immediately call me. You'll see my name and number on that page. And let me contact the school and find out. It could be a school that for some one reason or another, we didn't reach out to them or they had a change in superintendent or principal, someone wasn't familiar with the program, we can explain it to them. You can even call them and say, you know, uh, are you familiar with the KFAX voucher program because I don't see your school listed on the website. Every year we do get schools that come to us because a parent requested that they consider the half price voucher. So if you don't see the school in your neighborhood that you're familiar with, yeah, don't, don't think that there's no opportunity because there is. And again, complete details available at kfax.com. That's kfax.com. You can also call toll free to pose questions, how many vouchers are still available, details of this sort, anything that might be unique to your circumstance. Uh, simply call toll free 800-947-KFAX. That's 800 800- Nine four seven five three two nine. We'll be happy to answer any of your questions. Again, as Brian points out, this is on a first come, first serve basis. So the early bird catches the worm. We invite you to go online today to kfax.com. Check out the half off tuition page. And then again, if you have any questions or to redeem your voucher, call toll free eight hundred nine four seven. 5329. That's 800 947 KFAX. At the end of the day, when it comes to rearing our child and giving them the tools they need for their not only scholastic future, but quite frankly, for their adulthood, we really only get one chance to do it right. So don't hesitate. Get more information. Go online today, kfax.com, or call toll-free 800-947-5329. That's 800-947-KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation, 538 here on your Thursday edition. And as we continue on, Interesting conversation coming up next with the new author. In fact, this is his debut um, book, I should say. And um, he's written a new biography on his father's cousin, a man that initially probably to you will not be a name that you will remember, but a man who had a vital impact on the careers of a number of notable authors, including that of Ernest Hemingway. In addition to that, he was very involved from World War II forward in, um, how should we say this, not just to public information, but as well helping governments craft the way they deliver their message 
to listeners outside of a nation's borders, speaking specifically of things like uh, the Office of War Information that was the precursor to the Voice of America during World War II, later on serving as an advisor to Radio Free Europe through most of the 1950s and and early 60s, uh, clearly during some of the parts of the, the height of the Cold War. Mark Lurie joins us now to talk about a new book he's written called Galatier, The Lost Generation's Forgotten Man. And Mark, great to have you on the show. Great, thank you. Pleasure to be here, and I appreciate your pronunciation of his last name. Tell us a bit, if you would, first about uh, what sort of sparked your interest in researching your uh, your dad's cousin. Uh, certainly you were aware of, of some of his exploits during the course of his career that uh, is pretty remarkable in uh, 50, 60-something years. But to sit down and begin doing the exhaustive research, what, what said to you, got to do this, this is a story that needs to be told? My sister. My sister asked me, uh, she mentioned Galantier, and uh, she asked me what I knew of him. And I said, nothing. I had met his sister, but the name was unfamiliar to me, Galantier. Uh, She asked me to look into it, and I told her I would. And five years later, I started to. I, uh, I, I used a search engine for his name and discovered that his papers were at the at Columbia University, at the Butler Rare Books and Manuscripts Library, and a call there to their librarian, Tara Craig, had 30 boxes of books, thousands and thousands of pages waiting for me. I went with my camera, and it was simply, uh, I didn't intend to write a book. I was simply there to learn about a relative, and uh, uh, I was fortunate to have the camera because I couldn't have remained in New York for the time required to read all the documents. I brought the photos of the documents back and over the course of the next year started to familiarize myself with them. Although I must say there were nuggets that weren't discovered that I didn't discover until the third or fourth reading of some of those and understanding uh, in the context of what other libraries had uh, their import. One of the amazing things about this period of time, perhaps unlike today, even though we're quick to do things like send emails and text messages, um, uh, just what kind of an electronic repository will be there to preserve all of this for uh, future generations 50, 60, 70 years later is probably quite questionable. But the period in which your great uncle, or or cousin rather, was was active and was writing, uh, sending letters, diaries, things of that sort was really quite common. So I imagine you really walked into a huge treasure trove of not just information written about him, but more importantly, information written by him. I don't think that emails are going to survive the way, and I don't think that they probably deserve to survive the way the written word does. He he did not send off his first draft of letters, and I believe that most people who wrote letters at the time didn't. You don't see subtexts in emails these days, but you do in many of his letters, and uh, they they had nuance that I think uh, email discourse these days doesn't. Looking at the course of his life and certainly his career, which, as we mentioned, went everywhere from uh, befriending some writers who went on to become huge names like Hemingway 
and then, of course, his involvement, um, having been born in the United States with strong connections back to France and was very involved during the war, uh, specifically with the Office of War Information. I understand that he was active as a French speaker on the America, America's Voice of America. Uh, he was. That, uh, he, his job served essentially two purposes, maybe three. Uh, one was to uh, persuade the Germans that their cause was unjust and lost. The uh, second was to, produce, to uh, persuade French-speaking people of the opposite. And the third was to uh, assure that after the war, uh, uh, France did not fall into civil war or under a, into a, under a dictatorship. He was especially concerned about de Gaulle. As you know, he was to have uh, started a year and a half earlier than he did. He was, he was appointed the head of uh, operations in for France. He, uh, he took off from New York to go to London uh, about a year prior to D-Day. His plane, uh, which was one of those large flying boats, uh, went up to Botwood Harbor in Nova Scotia. And uh, they refueled, and as the plane was taking off, it uh, it lost uh, lift, did a number of porpoises, and then finally uh, crashed nose first into Botwood Harbor, and the fuselage flooded. Eleven people were killed, and when they got to Lewis, he had stopped breathing. His lungs were filled with water, and they assumed uh, his body was cold, and they assumed, I guess, that he was a goner. But uh, there's apparently a, a human reflex called the mammalian diving reflex that slowed uh, slowed the flow of blood to non-essential organs. They actually drained his lungs, and he he recovered. And he went on to uh, a year and a half later to London, where he once again met up with Hemingway, who was eager to go with the troops and land on the beaches of Normandy, but. Uh, <laughs> the army wasn't about to have any of that. At the time, Hemingway was married to Martha Gellhorn. She was the, uh, the licensed reporter, the certified reporter for Collier's Magazine, and Collier's was allowed only one. And Hemingway uh, wrote to Collier's and said, well, make me the one. So they kicked his wife out of the position, and Hemingway got the position as the certified reporter. But... It was Gellhorn who landed on the beach, on Omaha Beach, on D-Day, because she hid aboard, aboard a, a medical boat, uh, disguised herself as a medic, and went with the, uh, the medical corps onto the beaches and wrote about it. Uh, the marriage did not survive that uh, that piece of one upmanship, although it was, it was quite doomed before then as well. Well, and I, and I suspect she's probably fortunate that uh, she survived that piece of one upmanship. And we were just talking about D Day yesterday on its uh, 74th anniversary. And uh, given the peril that uh, not only uh, military soldiers but embedded reporters faced in covering uh, that turning point in the war was a significant one. The involvement of Galatier in um, campaigns of information and education uh, was a big part of, of what occupied a lot of his working years, again, initially with the Office of War Information, which uh, later on would become, people will be more familiar today with the Voice of America, and then, of course, uh, many years serving as an advisor to Radio Free Europe 
from 1952 all the way to 1964, so across the entirety of uh, not just the Eisenhower years, but into the Kennedy years as well. This brings up the fascinating topic for me because we've talked a lot, we've heard a lot over the last year and a half, two years about um, so-called fake news, which I would suspect in previous generations might have been called everything from yellow journalism to propaganda. We'll talk a bit about that. Mark Lurie with us today, author of a new book, just uh, newly released, by the way. You'll find it at bookstores uh, throughout the Bay Area. You also can get the book uh, through a lot of the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. Overlook Press, the publisher. The title, title, Galatier, The Lost Generation's Forgotten Man. We'll take a time out and back with more right after this. Let's get you updated on some traffic. This is not fake news. This is the real deal. No agenda other than to get you home safely, we're told by Michael Bennett. Michael, what's going on? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with author Mark Lurie. Mark has a new book just released by Overlook Press, copies of which are available through um, certainly the usual suspects, Amazon.com, Bay Area Bookstores. It is the story of his father's cousin, a notable author and man very heavily involved in the U.S. propaganda machine during World War II under the guise of the Office of War Information, later on the Voice of America, and certainly um, as an advisor to Radio Free Europe. He writes about Galatier, and I'm curious, um, in, in terms of your research and what you know of Lewis's involvement with um, and, and propaganda is maybe too strong of a word, but I, I guess in a sense, in terms of what the United States was doing, we almost had to in response to the intentional propaganda that was being put out by Nazi Germany under the leadership of, of Joseph Goebbels, and uh, they certainly had people like uh, England's uh, Lord Haw Haw, William Joyce, and so it was critical, I suppose, for the United States to respond in kind, in part to set the record straight, and I guess too. Mark, to give a sense of hope to uh, millions of people that were in war-torn Europe that all was not lost. Yes. In fact, Lewis started the the first broadcast from New York. They were broadcast by shortwave uh, and uh, for things that didn't have the same time urgency by tape or wire by ship. But uh, uh, Lewis started the first broadcast by saying, this year we're going to bring you great news. Uh, the uh, it, it was more than that, though. It was, it was more than, uh, uh, well, let's say, uh, a fighting position uh, vis-a-vis the Germans. The, uh, the U.S. was concerned that being an occupied country, being occupied by the Americans, would probably be no more palatable to the French than being occupied by the Germans had been. And they were concerned about how the French might react to Americans who had actually had it pretty good during the First World War, who were well-fed during the Second World War, and uh, who were um, who were there uh, enjoying French women and French wine. Uh, there was a, a delicate balance that had to be struck. The, U, the uh, Americans were in France for a long time before the war ended, and that was part of Lewis's uh, role as well. Plus, uh, of course, um, De Gaulle attempted to uh, seize power by controlling the press. And he tried to control the press by controlling the availab- availability of newsprint. Uh, 
And it's and probably important for people to also understand in terms of setting all of this in context, because sort of the bigger picture, we think, well, of course, Nazi Germany invades your country. They're now the occupying force. Certainly, you're going to be thrilled upon liberation, no matter who comes in, to free you from the tyranny of Nazi Germany. But the fact of the matter was there were a number of individuals, certainly not whole countries, but individuals in places like the Netherlands and Belgium and France that somehow felt comfortable with the Nazis, oddly enough. I mean, even in terms of the mindset in Vichy, France, that that generally was sort of a puppet state. They were unoccupied, but it was a puppet state for the Germans. And, and I don't know, maybe part of that was just sort of get along, otherwise we will be occupied too. What do you think? Well, I think there were various degrees of, of willingness. Certainly in France, Laval was eager to help. And we had Quisling, whose <laughs> name is now immortalized. Um, yes, uh, there was that mindset. Of course, for a long time, the French did not know whether, whether in fact, the Germans would succeed. Before the Americans came into the war, it looked like all of Europe would be lost. That that certainly is very true. Now, let, let's come to... Um Galatier's involvement with the Office of War Information later on, Radio Free Europe. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of this in response to the um, campaign as mis- misinformation and propaganda put out by uh, the Nazi government. Um, in later years, of course, we saw it as a means of helping to um, bring not only information but a sense of hope to uh, countries behind the Iron Curtain that had fallen under the dominance of um, the Soviet Union post-World War II. Uh, what was uh, the extent of his involvement with all of that? Circumstances after World War II behind the Iron Curtain were morose. Um, people, there was no news. There was, the, the, there was one voice, and it was the government's voice of what was going on, and everybody knew it was a lie about production outputs, uh, about uh, quality of life. The fact is that uh, government officials and factory managers, they, uh, they controlled the people's lives. If you wanted a telephone, there was a price to be paid. If you wanted to keep your job, if you were a woman, sometimes you had to compromise yourself. Um, if you wanted uh, uh, to an apartment, that had a price too. It, and in a uh, in a collective state like that, you aren't rewarded for your effort, rewarded for the efforts of others, and everybody feels the other guy's job. The news was not news. It was the government's perception of what the people should believe. And Radio for Europe was created to broadcast accurate news. They had reports of mismanagement, of, of production failures, of lying and cheating, uh, of of uh, simply uh, uh, the brutality of a police state. And those reports w- were the news that the people knew, they knew what was going on because they were living it every day, but they didn't have a source of news for that. Radio for Europe was created to be a fair and objective source of news, not only about the corruption of the, of the Soviet-controlled countries, but also about what was going on in the larger world. And uh, over time, uh, Radio Free Europe broadcasters came to be believed. Now, these were people who were emigres from the countries that they were broadcasting to. They spoke their language. They knew their mores and their culture. 
And uh, for a while, it was very effective. And the citizens of those countries came to trust and believe Radio Free Europe. The problem was that in 1952, there was a presidential election during the era of McCarthy. And both Eisenhower and Stevenson were moving to the right as to who would be the the stand behind the Iron Curtain countries the most. Um, and the same with uh, Alan Dulles, who spoke very with great bellicosity about if anybody if anybody behind the Iron Curtain organizes to rebel, we're going to be there to uh, to lend our aid. This happened not only in the 1952 election, but in the 1956 election. Um, I, uh, the way Radio Free Europe worked was that each of these local broadcasters would write their own scripts, essentially. They, do, they would decide what news to broadcast and how to broadcast it. But, Lewis, I, I, let, me, let me say this. Some of your listeners might not understand that we're we're giving his last name a French pronunciation. It's spelled G A L A N T I E R E, and is often pronounced Galantier by people in this country. Uh, he wrote what are called guidances, and uh, they gave general guidance, general directions as to what should and should not be said. For example, when Eisenhower and Stevenson were speaking about how the U.S. would come to the aid of Europe should there be armed resistance, Lewis cautioned his broadcasters that that wasn't likely true. They shouldn't say that. The Soviets had already exploded a nuclear weapon, and he thought, Lewis thought, and his thoughts were shared by uh, Radio Free Europe men on the ground, experts on the ground, that it was posturing, and they would not be uh, lived up to. The, the men on the, they were, it was almost exclusively men at the time, and they were William Griffith and Paul Henze. Uh, Griffith would go on to become a professor at MIT, and Henze had already gotten his master's at, uh, at Harvard. And the three of them had to fight off these uh, sycophants of, uh, Psy warriors, that's the term that they were given. That's the term that Griffith gave them. These armchair warriors um, who were saying, uh, uh, if, you, if the people of Eastern Europe take up arms, we will, uh, we will intervene. Uh, the test, of course, uh, uh, first, let me, let, me, uh, let me read you one section of, of, the, of, a, of a guidance so you'll understand it. This is Lewis speaking to his people in the field. General Eisenhower and his chief advisor on international affairs, Mr. John Foster Dulles, has spoken with great firmness. We of Radio Free Europe cannot comment on these statements with unqualified optimism, for to do so would be to deceive our listeners by inspiring in them exaggerated hope of a Western uh, intervention of which there is, as of yet, little uh, little sign. Uh, so, uh, and yet you had, you had some in Radio Free Europe who were saying, and, and in this case I'm speaking about Reuben Nathan, who was, by this time, by 1956, Radio Free Europe, which had initially been uh, staffed with uh, Office of War Information Professionals, by this time was being staffed with political hacks and appointees. 
And uh, this fellow, Reuben Nathan, wrote a guidance saying that we, uh, if there is effective resistance, we will call Moscow's bluff. And uh, nothing less than freedom of the captive peoples is acceptable. And Griffith and Henze in, in uh, Munich, where Radio Free Europe was based, and I'm quoting now, called it stupid and hair-brave advice. And I think that they were being kind with that. Um, in, uh, in 1956, with that presidential race, there were again, uh, Eisenhower said, e there should not be any eagerness for the United States to avoid war. Uh, Lewis again sent out warnings to his emigrants not to believe it. Um, but 1956 was kind of an important year. It was the year of Stalin died. Stalin had died, and Khrushchev gave his secret speech denouncing Stalin, which, like all secrets, did not remain so. It was soon leaked worldwide. And uh, he struck a deal with Marshal Tito in Yugoslavia, in which Tito was given free reign, just about, to run his internal affairs, provided he supported uh, the USSR in uh, its international positions. When, uh, when there was a riot in Poland in, uh, 19, in July 1956, um, I'm sorry, that was in June 1956, uh, bear in mind now, we had, we had the Korean War going on, and the Soviets had to, were trying to raise money from their satellite countries in order to help fight that war, and they were pushing them pretty hard, and there was a revolt imposed on Poland. And uh, uh, Galantier's guidance is he continued to warn the people, uh, be patient, um, maybe uh, uh, some, uh, maybe a, a settlement. You, you might remember the name Pol uh, Gamolka, who was head of Poland at the time. A, uh, a settlement was reached with the Soviets, and uh, life in Poland became a bit more lenient. The problem was that the, uh, the Budapest, the Hungarian staff at Radio, uh, the Voice of Free Hungary, which is the subdivision of Radio Free Europe for Hungary, their staff had pretty much gone to seed. They were not competent. Uh, their manager was in ill health. And uh, William Griffith had written to Lewis saying it's very urgent, and it was a, it was a secret cable for Lewis's eyes only. For Louis Gallantier to uh, recast the staff. He wanted a complete makeover of the staff. Louis brought this before the head of the Free Europe Committee, which was the parent of Radio Free Europe. His name was uh, Shepherdson, and said, we've, we've got to do this because this, the Hungarians, seeing what's going on outside of their country, are on a hair trigger of revolt. And if they do revolt, and if if we give them any encouragement, the Soviets are going to respond, and there's uh, it's going to be bloody, and we are not going to prevail. You know, what's interesting about this, Mark, is the attention to, to detail, even in terms of what was going on behind the scenes at the VOA. I would have thought in the Radio Free Europe that they, they, this was a well-oiled machine, but apparently not so. And the attention to accuracy and truism within the reporting based on the guidance offered by 
Lewis, is, is remarkable and maybe an important lesson that our media could learn today. It is a fascinating look at the life and times of Louis Galatier. Again, the book is newly released by Overlook Press. You'll find it available through Amazon.com. And uh, it's, a, it's a compelling read, not only in terms of historical details at the time, but the associations that he had and the impact that he had on the careers of other great writers like Hemingway. I'd like to thank Mark Lurie for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. All right, we are way late, so let's get caught up again. It seems to be a theme throughout tonight's show, huh? <laughs> See what's going on traffic-wise. An update with Michael Bennett. Michael. 